0: I was proud of myself for being confronted with this situation where I thought it was quite literally impossible and I kept pushing anyway. And that lesson has helped me in a lot of different areas of life. One of the fundamental building blocks of achieving large goals is concrete belief in what you're doing. And it's hard to create belief in something specifically if you are pragmatic wherever your current comfort level is with something it serves you to try to go way past the mark that you're at right now and commit to something that's way past that baseline it definitely serves you to prove to
1: yourself that you can do that and we all can today we are bringing you the inspiring story of entrepreneur and adventurer brad weimer through his own personal example Brad has repeatedly shown others that the way to achieve larger and larger goals in business and in life is through a willingness and even an eagerness to deliberately push past limitations. Brad understands that the greatest lessons lie in moving past your baseline, and he has demonstrated this on multiple occasions. He describes several of these challenges in this conversation, including one that was called everesting times two. Strap on your seatbelt and get ready for a raw, inspiring, and entertaining conversation with one of our most interesting guests, Brad Weimert. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm really excited today to be having Brad Weimert as my guest. Brad sold Cutco starting back in 1999. Uh, Fast rising success in the personal sales ranks, won the Silver Cup as the number one rep in the company in 2001, wound up being a Hall of Fame Cutco sales rep before moving on. He founded Easy Pay Direct, which is a payment processing platform targeted at special needs businesses, which he'll explain. They have served over thirty thousand businesses over the years. Brad is also an amazing adventurer and philanthropist with some incredible stories to tell that we'll also get into today. Brad Weimert, welcome to the podcast. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this will be very cool. I will. I've been looking forward to. Catching up with you in this way for a while, Brad. Tell us how you got started with Cutco back in 1999. So,
0: (laughs) I was a, a full blown delinquent in high school. I mean, I got arrested 11 times before I was 20. I was always entrepreneurial, I guess I'll say. I didn't see myself as that. But if you look back at my story, I very much wanted to do my own thing from like the age of five. I wanted to have my own money and be independent and be able to not have my parents around. And in 1999, I was working in a parking garage, taking money for seven fifty an hour or something. And I got a letter in the mail. Uh, and it was for $12. It looked like $12 an hour. Now that I know, it was $12 an hour per appointment. But I went in for the quote-unquote interview, which are these group interviews, and was amazed and shocked that I got the job. Of course, we all know that it is a recruiting machine, which is one of the best things about Cutco. But uh, I dove in, and to my parents' credit, they never raised any flags about commission only, about this being challenging, about it being a scam, like all these things that unfortunately discourage kids from getting started. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had the support from my parents very early on, and uh, and I also had a really, really, really good manager. But that was the uh, that was the beginning. Yeah, who was your initial manager? Corey Lilburn. And I think truthfully, had I not had Corey Lilburn as a manager, I don't know uh, that I would have gotten through the fast start and the initial couple months.
1: Not every manager is as open in recruiting as Corey might have been back then, you know, as he was taught working in that division, in that organization. So...
0: Well, that's true, but in fairness, he also pawned off my training class on his assistant manager because he was
1: like, "This guy's shady. <laughs> I'm making him the assistant manager to do." <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, I think I think it's cool that your parents were were supportive as you got started. It's a huge deal, and uh, I didn't. I mean, it's really a huge
0: deal when I look at it as an adult. I'm 42 now, and when I think about sort of raising kids and how most people's parents interact in that situation. It's amazing that my parents were supportive of that and never, never did anything or said anything to me to discourage me from that path.
1: Yeah. Yep. And it's good that, uh, Cutco turned out not to be a scam for you, huh? <laughs> you know, what's funny is I was at a party,
0: um, probably years later, I'm like 23, 24, a college party. Maybe I was younger. I don't know. But, and some kid came up to me and was like, Oh, I did that interview. And he was like, then I realized what they were doing. They charged everybody, you know, 150 bucks for a sample kit. And that's how they made all their money. And I knew it was a scam. And I remember kind of waiting for the pause. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I can understand why you think that. You're wrong. But I totally understand how you think that. And it was this awkward, jarring stop for him. But yeah, I mean, thankfully, it didn't end up being a scam.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I obviously as being having been in Cutco for so long, I, I certainly have had a number of conversations with people I've run across who were like, wait, you do that? Like, I thought that wasn't legit or something along those lines. Or we'll ask about the uh, some of the negative influence that's out there. And I, and I let people know, like, you know, we work with a lot of 18 and 19-year-olds. And unfortunately, when an 18 or 19-year-old fails at something, very seldom do they take responsibility for that <laughs> failure. They usually <laughs> want to find somebody else to blame, like the company, right? That's so, fair. And you know, the irony yeah.
0: now is that being so entrenched in business, Most of my ecosystem, most of my friend group by design are high-performing entrepreneurs. And almost unequivocally, that group of people has this tremendous respect, admiration, uh, and desire to seek out people that have had the experience through companies like Cutco or other direct sales companies. And there are a handful of them out there because they know that it's such a such an unbelievable training ground to learn sales, organization, personal development, accountability. So it's it's really been a fun
1: journey to watch that whole thing shake out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, you succeeded super fast. I mean, you won the Silver Cup in, in 2001. How did you climb the ranks so quickly as a sales rep? I worked
0: hard and said another way, I had more discipline, I put more energy in, I, to date, don't think I'm the greatest salesperson in the world. I certainly have a very, very good grasp on sales. And I certainly honed that skill through Cutco, but I just outworked everybody. The program was laid out for me and I believed that it would work. And I think that the 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 most significant thing that gets in the way of new sales reps in, in all industries, all verticals, is they don't think that if they just follow the system, it'll work. They think that they can do a better, or they deviate in some way. And if you just take, in this case, a very proven system and work it and put more energy into it, you're going to get the results on the, out, on, on the other
1: side of it. So yeah. that was really it for me. Yeah, I mean, that's a, great, that's a great point that I think everybody should take to heart is just the importance of following a system. When you are in a place like this that's been around for so long and has had so much success, that that's a lot quicker path to get to where you want to be than trying to reinvent the wheel. Well, and
0: I'll say that as a uh, you know, as somebody that is in sort of a different sales cycle than Cutco now, and I'm really analyzing sales programs, and I look at them and see what works, what doesn't. If you come into a sales uh, company, or if you come into any company doing sales, and it's not proven, right? It hasn't been around for 60 years, and it's new. Look, you're right to have some skepticism there. However, the path is still to work a system for a dedicated period of time before you pass any judgment. You cannot consistently evaluate change, evaluate change in short cycles. You have to give it enough time to see if the numbers shake out.
1: Mhm. Yeah, exactly. Great point. Appreciate hearing that. These days, the system at Cutco is has been going through a several year overhaul trying to combine the new innovations of the virtual world with the tried and true methods of many many years of success and that's been our prevailing challenge these last few years is trying to find that, that right balance between those two things. Yeah, I saw you in, in Vegas a couple months ago
0: and uh, we talked about that a little bit. And I believe that, and I hear that. And I think that that's my last sentiment should ring true there, which is, yeah, if you're navigating new waters, you still need to put your head down and put enough reps in to see if you can make that system work. Before adjusting and pivoting to something else, and that's tough. And and th- th- I think that can be tough. But you have to you have to do it because sometimes, as anybody in sales knows, you can make a hundred calls and not get a hold of anybody. And sometimes you make a hundred and you get a hold of thirty, right? It, like those ratios uh, shake out in larger sample sets, but you don't know until you give it a shot.
1: Yeah, exactly. Great, great concepts for sure. Tell me some more of the most enduring lessons that you feel stand out from your Cutco Vector experience. Oh man, I end up sounding like a a
0: fanboy of Vector and Cutco because, uh, which I very much don't think I sounded like when I was working there, (laughs) but there are so many. It, It was the, it was the beginning for me of learning how to be outcome focused so it was, hey, you know, what are the things that I'm doing in my life that are either aiding or hindering my ability to get to a goal? And I mean, real broad life lessons of if I want an outcome, every moment of my life, everything that I'm doing has the ability to influence that outcome. And those things are either taking me further to uh, or closer to or further away from that outcome. And that's probably the most resounding lesson that I got from it was just this structure of goal setting and accomplishment. And I sparingly use absolutes, but I think that there are a few. And I think one of them is that you can always do something to impact your outcome. Sometimes it's a very little thing and you can't make the, the needle move a lot. And sometimes it's a pretty radical adjustment, but there is always something that you can do. And that sense of radical ownership came from Cutco. It came from Vector and learning uh, that it was up to me.
1: Mm. I love it, Brad. I'm reminded of uh, one of my favorite Jim Rohnisms where he says there's two ways to live, either making a living or designing your life. Mm. And that most people go through life just making a living, they're just doing what they did yesterday and they're going to do the same thing tomorrow. And there's no outcome focus. It's just sort of like this process focus of just doing what you're doing and continuing to do the same thing without a vision of where that's leading. And designing your life, to me, is about setting and achieving goals. And it starts with setting, achieving very small goals. And then that grows to setting and achieving much bigger goals. And there's that constant process where you know you can affect your outcome. You know you can move yourself in the direction that you want to go. And uh, the, the ultimate achievers in life are able to set, any goal, and then ultimately move in that direction and usually hit it because they get that concept. Yeah, I love that. And I think that the challenge for a lot of people
0: becomes the moments when it feels like you couldn't have done anything differently. Hey, I did everything right and I still didn't get the outcome I wanted. And for me, that the, the thing that I try to remember all the time is I could have done something, right? I still could have done something. And in fact, that's so ingrained in me now that the gap between I'm helpless and, oh, wait, this is what I could have done different is essentially zero. Okay, I don't have the thoughts anymore of, well, there's nothing I could do.
1: The thought is, shit, what could I have done differently? Mm. Very good. Good insight. What else stands out, Brad, as some of the most enduring lessons of your time with Cutco Vector? I mean, I think that, I think the other big one,
0: like I said, there are a lot, but the other large one is probably work ethic, right? The other one is, and I guess that, you know, it really also plays into stats. So the, these will go together, but I had this manager, Corey Lilburn, who's still a dear friend of mine. And I remember one of the things that he got upset about at one point in time was me not showing up for a team meeting. I can't remember when they were. It was probably like 7 o'clock on a Tuesday or something. And as I was uh, driving, I was excited about finishing an appointment. And he was—he he had this staunch response of, yeah, it's fine. But you have to be at the meetings. And in retrospect, this was probably because he needed a poster boy at the meeting. But for me, one of the things that ultimately came out of it was a more rational approach, Was which was, I need to protect the things that drive everything else. And for him, the meetings drove everything else. Right. And for me as a sales rep, the actual lesson was never book over your phone time because right. that seven to nine slot, while I could uh, get in front of Mr. and Mrs. Jones during seven to nine, because they were both home, it was also the only time I could make phone calls with the highest answer rate. So never appointments from seven to nine and always making the calls no matter what. I mean, it was very, very rare that I would miss that slot. So it was, I think one of those lessons was both grind it out, but make sure you're doing the activity that's going to fuel everything else. That still takes me to today. Still today, I count the calls, think about how many people I need to reach out to and make sure that I'm doing the front-end activities that ultimately lead to the outcome, even if there are many, many steps removed, right? You've got to keep the funnel full in order to make uh, make sales. Yeah.
1: And I had the same perspective as Corey about the team meetings. I just always felt like it was so important for any rep to have that weekly time to sharpen their acts, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to continue to learn, to be able to uh, have exposure to some ideas they might not have thought about, to be around the positive environment of the team for motivation. That that little quick hit of education and inspiration was a critical piece to success and i always wanted people to protect that time as well in their schedule so i just i just like that idea of thinking about what are the things that drive everything else mm-hmm. and making sure that you protect your time around those things yeah i totally agree and and i think that on on that specific
0: element now one of the coolest things about my life is that i've gotten to see the management executive side of the table and as a <laughs> as a loud wild Uh, silver cup winner, uh, when there was only one rep silver cup, I was like, Hey, listen, I'm making it rain. I'm the one selling shit. You know, what are you doing? This is my attitude as a 21 year old, which as I'm sure you can relate went over very well with the DMS and division managers. (laughs) Um, So, but now I get to see the other side of it. And now, uh, pragmatically, when I think about that approach, systemically, that is the right approach for a manager, right? It is the way that
1: you're going to impact
0: the most people and have the, the biggest
1: lever. As I worked with guys like John Berghoff and Hal Elrod and others like that, yeah. I knew that I had to find a way to make sure that their time at the office was giving them value. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's the fine line that had to be walked as I was developing the, the Brad Weimerts of those days in California. Well, and this is, you know, this is why you are uh are now and were
0: then a name that everybody has high regard for because that approach is not one that is shared by every leader. And this idea of uh keeping your people top of mind and how you can help your people all of them is a a sign of an amazing leader. It's not one that everybody has. So, I
1: love that. It's great to hear and it's a good reminder for me as somebody that does this now. Yeah. Thanks, Brad. One of the fundamental things I think, Brad, was that I had a a real focus on personal development. uh, A meeting in my organization was never 100% about selling Cutco. Mm -hmm. It was always a portion about selling Cutco and then some recognition and stuff like that. But then in the latter part of the event, we worked on ourselves. We talked Mm -hmm. about life, we talked about personal things, we talked about growth. We talked about stuff that the average 19, 20-year-old is not hearing anywhere else and loves hearing and talking about because they're super inspired by it. And I I just think that that focus on working on personal skills and growth and life like outside of the vector business, I just think that was such an important part of what we did that, that I do think can apply and be replicated in almost any organization in almost any setting with employees. Man, that's
0: a really good reminder. And it's not just the average 18 or 19-year-old that doesn't have exposure to that or do that on a routine basis. This is humanity, right? This is the upper few percent maybe have this focus on personal development and growth. And some of the things that seem obvious to one that has been doing it forever, that has lived a life where they're focused on the outcome and developing themselves and getting better, those people feel sometimes like the, the simple things people already know. And in fact, it is the simple things that people need to know and hear
1: and practice. Yeah, that's a good reminder for me today. Yeah. I've got this mastermind group, Brad, here in the Silicon Valley of a bunch of different like wizards and CEOs and venture capitalists and just super successful people. And we talked about this whole idea that like, how could Silicon Valley adopt this concept Because obviously it's publicly held companies. It's a little bit different, right? And it was so interesting to see the differences in the room, Brad, where there was a lot of guys that were like, boy, we could do a much better job of that. And then there were other guys that were like, all my people care about is making money. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about that. And I was taken aback that, you know, that's that, that's how some people think about what leadership is, is just help people to do well at their job and make money. Whereas other people see real leadership as this more holistic, approach of helping the entire person not just helping them with their job yeah i just finished reading chip wilson's book who was the founder of lululemon
0: and it was i think they actually changed the title of it at some point but it's it was called stretchy black pants and now i think it's morphed into the lululemon story and maybe that's a subheader now i don't know but anyway one of the things that and i'm actually hoping to get him on my podcast he's we're looking for a date right now but i interview Successful people on Beyond a Million and Chips. One of the things that I got from the book in that lesson, what or one of the lessons I took from that book was that he was allowed to do that, and his whole culture revolved around people going through Landmark Forum, which is one of several sort of personal development courses out there that's been around for a long time. But he mandated that every single person in his ethos went through Landmark, and he did it for a few reasons. One was the personal development, but the other was to ensure that everybody had a common set of language that they could communicate through. And that's really important. Like That's an interesting element to this whole thing of leading through personal development. But I think that the key was that it was so ingrained in the culture that you would only hire people in that fit that mold. And so if you talk to the CEO that says, my people don't care about anything but money, great. Well, you hired those people, right? You built the culture where that is the ethos. And so you might be correct that having talks on personal development to that audience isn't the right fit, but it doesn't mean that that's the most effective or efficient thing to do as a leader. Right.
1: Exactly. Great stuff. Great stuff. I appreciate uh, being able to banter with you about some of those things right there, Brad. Well, these are things that, you know, I think if you're leading and you're not thinking about those things, you're not spending enough time leading. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your experience as a leader. You founded Direct. How'd you get into this industry? Really deliberately. Uh, so uh, ultimately,
0: EasyPay Direct is a payment gateway and a merchant account provider. So we allow people to uh, accept credit cards and accept ACH payments and probably at some point crypto. But when I was selling Cutco, I got to a point where I had not finished school and I was just, school was just dragging out <laughs> because I was making you know 100 grand a year when I was 20 selling knives. its a long time ago. And I was like, what am I doing? School is not that important right now. I don't want to rush through school and get out and make 70 grand a year, getting a quote unquote real job. So I kept doing that. But I hit a point where I thought, "You know, if I'm going to finish school, which I am, I've got to get done with this. This is becoming a hindrance. So I put together a list of... I, I, two things happened. One is I put together a list of criteria of what I wanted in the next gig. And the other is I said, I've got a lot of credits left. I had like two and a half years left, but I said, I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. So I started taking 18 to 20 credit hours a semester and selling. And I decided that I was going to go head down and work. And I was not going to watch the leaderboards anymore. And this was important for me as a very competitive person. So I stopped going to conferences, everything I just sold for money and built this list of criteria while I was doing it. And the criteria was stuff like, No cap on income, recession resistant, location independent, residual by nature, tech focused, B2B. And I want to talk about that one for a second, and the ability to make a lot of money fast. Credit card processing does not fit the last item, but it fits all the others. So the last item, I started doing a bunch of real estate investing and flipping houses to get chunks of cash. And to date, that's still a pretty good mechanism to make a lot of money quickly if you know what you're doing. But the others, The the most important thing on that list was the B2B element. And the reason that was important to me is as I looked at the tail end of my Cutco career, I realized that I had 2,000 Mrs. Jones in a database. And I thought, well, what am I gonna do with 2,000 Mrs. Jones? And the answer was not that much. And I thought, what if instead, when I left the next thing, I had this amazing network of successful business people, and that was my community, not Mrs. Jones, and that was a huge driver. And as it turns out, that really paved the road for a hell of a lot of opportunity. And ultimately, it took me to a place where I internalized today that relationships are the foundation of everything else. But that criteria ended up being one of the best
1: best things that I did when I was twenty five. Mm, super interesting. So t- tell us about how you got started and the. Uh... How you built success with the organization? Well, I fell on my face a lot.
0: Uh, <laughs> so you know what I knew from Cutco was uh, not quite knocking on doors. I mean, we know we know the gig. Anybody that sold Cutco, you're setting appointments and then selling. But I didn't know how to do, and it didn't even occur to me to approach business in any other way except to call, do appointment, sell things. So I uh, I found somebody that owned a credit card processing company in Phoenix. He was introduced to me through actually an old Cutco rep, Pete Vargas, who is now still a friend. And I started selling for them as a 1099 agent. So very similar setup where it was like, yep, commission only, go get them. Here's how you do it, go get them. Except way less structured than Cutco. I mean, very little instruction, just go get them. So you know, I kind of learned from the owner, like how the industry worked, what was happening, and then went and tried. B2B sales, B2B intangible sales is very different than B2C tangible sales. So with Cutco, when you can pull out, we still cutting rope and leather and pennies? No,
1: not so much, but uh, Uh yeah. Because you're you're doing virtual as well. We virtualized virtualized a lot, so. Right. But yeah, some reps are doing demos live and they probably are still cutting the penny for sure. Well, when you can see something work like that, that tangible element
0: sells. Yeah. Yeah. and intangible, you're conceptually trying to explain something. And when you're selling to consumer, it's also much easier to have an emotional sale where you have a trigger that somebody gets excited about, like cutting a penny, and they yeah. think, oh shit, I need, I need those. <laughs> yeah, I just need them. In business, that's very uncommon to have a heavily emotional sale because you're right. looking at, you know, Needs. what's the... Yes, what's the ROI on this? Does it, does it make sense? So I fell on my face for... It took me probably three years Before I had gotten any sort of livable, functional residual to live my life on. And so that was probably 2009, 10. And at that point, kind of to accelerate through this, I met a client who had a real estate education company and they were doing, I don't know, two, three million bucks a year teaching people how to invest in real estate. And he needed somebody to come in and run the company. And I felt kind of my, all of the things in my life colliding new sales, had gone through the Cutco management training a few times, though never done it, never opened an office. And I had done a bunch of real estate investing. So I partnered with him. I spent two years running that company and had some equity in that company. The partnership dissolved after a couple of years, which is another story. But I had the credit card processing residual that whole time. And my ambition was to work with him for a while. And then when I was done, launch a company. That's ultimately what i did but one of the big things that happened through the real estate information company was i got to understand how marketing worked online how live events worked and how this very specific business model worked Mm -hmm. and it was riddled with challenges with credit card processing so that kind of opened the door for me to think oh there's actually a very unique area with specifically online payments where people have problems and an opportunity to fix the problem. So that was kind of the beginning of Easy Pay Direct.
1: Yeah, and you promote that you have a focus on what you call special needs businesses. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's interesting. Our industry
0: refers to this category as high risk, and nobody really wants to be called high risk. (laughs) Right. So we played with the language of special needs, but that also sounds a little uh, disparaging (laughs) at times. (laughs) So- The thing is, it's really realistically, anybody that's doing things online has a different risk than a coffee shop, for example. Right, yeah. The credit card processors are looking at what's the likelihood of the business going under combined with what's the likelihood of them getting a dispute or a refund. And that indicates what the risk is for that business. Mm -hmm. And a coffee shop has a very low risk of getting a dispute, right? If you don't like your coffee, you're just going to tell them on the spot. (laughs) You're not going to call four months later. And it has a very likelihood of going under unexpectedly, right? There's runway to see this business failing over time. Yes, But when you move things online, there's no concrete indicators of uh, inventory, a lease. The marketing models vary wildly. All of these different things, it presents a problem for payment providers. Mm -hmm. And the way that they handle that is when they get concerned they hold people's money or a uh, business owner's money or close their accounts without notice. So if you Google merchant account horror stories or Stripe held my money, you will get tens of millions of hits on this stuff. So EasyPayDirect built a platform that helps cater to e-commerce merchants or online businesses and help them navigate that
1: stuff and just put some of the control back in their hands. And outside of these sales challenges you described in the very early days, What have been some of the other bumps in the road as you built this business, Brad? Oh, God, man. I think the biggest one that I'm still
0: learning from now is Cutco conditioned me to be an executor. It reinforced this executor mentality. And what I mean by that is you get rewarded from your own performance as a sales rep. And you also get a hell of a lot of it, right? You're selling a, a lower dollar item. I mean, cut goes expensive, but you're selling a lot of times over and over and over and over. So, thousands of these little dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. And today, being in a leadership capacity and having managers and then having people under them, it is challenging to rewire myself to feel the dopamine rush from uplifting somebody else. Mm. Right. There are days when I, They're certainly productive when I spend time with people, have conversations with people, help them navigate something where I finish and I think, I didn't do shit today. (laughs) I didn't do anything personally. And that, in fact, is the goal. But I think that that has been one of the harder lessons is uh, navigating this difference of my emotional relationship with success. Mm,
1: Interesting point to consider. Mm. I like that. And you're a calculated risk taker. You've got this like spirit of adventure that's well known about you. How do you feel like that has come into play in business for you? I think that I have adopted... There are a couple of things. One is, for me, it's
0: not just adventure. It's also endurance. So when we look at some of my adventurous exploits, most of them involve a pretty significant element of endurance. And and there are two things that come to mind when you say that. One is through the endurance frame, when I'm doing, call it a, a long run, I refer to this moment of the inevitable suck, because it's not a question if something is going to suck. It's just when it's going to suck. And with endurance, you think, you know, if you're running for two, three, four, five, ten 10 hours, the question is just when you're going to hit that point. But you know, from the moment you hit that point on, it rarely goes away. You just start to learn how to live in that specific space. Mm. And I think that one of the lessons that has translated into the rest of my life is, yeah, this is a, this is a shitty situation right now. <laughs> and it's going to be this way for some period of time. And that's okay. I signed up for this. And I've got this challenge that's going to persist for a while. Like, for example, I parted ways with an operations manager that I had for several years about a year ago. Well, the first thing that happens in that situation is that all of that work rolls back to me. So in that instant, I think, okay, well, my world is going to change here pretty radically for some period of time. And it's not going to get fixed tomorrow. It's not going to get fixed a week from now or a month. And that's okay. Right. And I think it has helped me adopt
1: that mentality. So that's one big one for sure. Yeah, that's a strong insight. I mean, I I just think about any worthwhile goal that we pursue, it's just never a straight line to get there. Like Mm -hmm. there are always those periods of suck Mm -hmm. that you have to work through. And, And I think, Brad, that almost everybody stops in one of those periods And that's why so few people reach really the pinnacle of success at at anything. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. And I think the other thing that
0: stops some people too, or misaligns their behaviors is the other one, which is when I'm, when I'm looking at these endurance things or adventure things, I tend to assess risk from the perspective of what's the absolute worst thing that could happen. And I mean like the absolute worst thing that could happen. And also, what's the absolute best thing that could happen? And then when I'm planning, don't spend much time planning for those things. Pull it in a little bit and think, Mm -hmm. okay, well, this is the absolute worst. What's the likely absolute worst that's going to happen? And what's the likely absolute best? That's where your energy needs to be relative to planning and and making the numbers work in the equation. Because these tangential one-off situations that, yeah, could they happen? Sure. Sure to spend time and energy
1: focusing on that will misalign your path. Yeah, great point. I really like that idea of breaking down what's the likely worst thing, likely best thing versus just you know what could possibly happen and, uh, and devoting your planning energy to that window of things that are more likely. So, Well, you know, like if you set these sort of moonshot goals and then you break
0: down those moonshot goals for, well, this is what I should be doing this month. And next month, and this is where I should be. But if they're all tied to this huge, ambitious goal, you're going to feel behind really quickly. Mm -hmm. And if you instead reel it in and say, okay, well, this is the baseline, I'm pretty damn sure I can get here. You can hustle for that. You can still keep the other one there. But in terms of your
1: activities and behaviors, you have to look at both scenarios. Yeah, exactly. I've always tried to strike a balance, Brad, between being a big thinker, but having that big thinking fit into goals that are actually somewhat realistic, mm-hmm. right? Like That's tough. It, it's, a, it's a fine line, but I just see yep. people that set these goals that I, I go, how is that even possible? And sometimes, I don't know, maybe I don't think big enough, but obviously I've achieved a lot in the Cutco sphere through having that approach. But like you said, you can't be feeling like you're behind all the time in trying to reach for your goals. I feel like if you're a little bit behind, that's good. It's like, it's just within reach, mm-hmm. right? You, you want to just give a little bit, little bit of, a, of a pace quickening, right? But if you're so far behind that you can't even see it, it's demotivating for sure. I agree. And I think that one of
0: the fundamental building blocks of achieving large goals is concrete belief in what you're doing. And it's hard to create belief in something specifically If you are pragmatic, if you don't have data points or reference points that indicate that you can, in fact, do this thing, which necessarily you don't, if you're doing something new, it's hard to believe that you can do it. I interviewed somebody on Beyond a Million the other day, this guy, Ryan Pineda. And he, I think he's a religious person. And his frame for this was, you need to have faith in your capacity to achieve. That word is tied to sort of religion in a lot of ways, but he took the time to say, look, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it arrogance, confidence, belief, faith, but ultimately, you need to have this inner strength to accept that this could be you doing this. It happens to me specifically when I'm doing physical feats. I'm looking for the thing that is far enough outside my comfort zone that it gets me uncomfortable where I feel like I have to work like hell to get there. And it wakes me up and I go to sleep thinking about it because I'm a little scared that if I don't prepare and I don't go all in, I'm gonna mess it up. But if it's
1: too far out, then it won't start in the first place. Yeah, really just an interesting thing for people to think about as it applies to their goals and visions and things they want in their life. Great stuff. Let's talk about some of your adventures. Brad, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear about a few of the Crazy and exciting things that you've done. You rode your bike across the United States. Is that right? I did. Yeah. It was a long bike ride. Yeah. Where would you guys
0: start? Los Angeles. And that was actually with uh, we went Los Angeles to Boston. That was with Carl Drew, who was an old Cutco rep and dear friend of mine. But I had never ridden a road bike before, and I saw <laughs> <laughs> this' is a, tr- it's a true story. <laughs> uh. I was at uh, John Roman, also an old Cutco person owns a organization called uh, Front Row, and he did his first charity event ever, Front Row Foundation. And I went to the charity event and I was kind of wandering around the charity event, and I wasn't drinking that night, which is a boring way to do charity events in general. But I was wandering around and I saw Carl Drew, and Carl has done a bunch of crazy stuff. So he has climbed 50 mountains, he climbed K2, he kayaked through the Florida Everglades alone for two weeks, which is insanity. And I said, "Yeah, you know what? What crazy shit are you doing next, Carl?" And he said, "Well, I'm going to ride my bicycle from Los Angeles to Boston." And I sort of laughed at him, and then I kept walking around. And as I was walking around in my sobriety, I thought, "I know how to ride a bicycle. I could do that." Which is just an asinine thought. Uh, if you haven't been on a road bike or you haven't done distance on a road bike, <laughs> it's a jarring reality shift when you figure out what this is all about. But the long and short is a couple months later, as we got closer, I borrowed a road bike from John Rulin, also a Cutco person, and just beat the crap out of it. I spent, spent two months training and got to the starting line with uh, Carl Drew and seven other people. We rode from Los Angeles to Boston, and we spoke to middle school kids along the way about decision-making
1: and how the choices you make when you're younger impact you when you're older. Oh, that's really cool. And then yes. you, you went mountaineering with Carl in Europe,
0: right? I did. That's terrifying. I'm definitely afraid of heights. And uh, nobody really knows that because I keep doing things that, uh, <laughs> that involve heights. But I did. And Carl pushed me on that too. And it started a very similar way. He called me July 4th of 2011. And he, I picked up the phone and I was like, Carl. And he said, hey, so you're not really experienced enough to do this. but do you want to climb the three tallest mountains in the Swiss Alps? Naturally, <laughs> naturally, my response was, fuck yeah, I do. Uh, and then we got off the phone and he called me back a few days later and he said, so have you thought about it? And I was like, yeah, I've thought about it. I'm in. And same thing. I started training. And that was hilarious because when we got there to do the first one, it became very clear to me that, which was Mont Blanc, it became very clear to me that Carl was in horrible physical shape at the time, atypically (laughs) bad shape, but very experienced mountain climber. I was in very good physical shape with zero experience. That combination is horrible for mountaineering because you move really slowly through the boring stuff. And then the experienced person wants to move really quickly through the scary, challenging stuff. It was a
1: brutal, brutal experience, but a great one. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. And then tell us about Everesting times two. What was that? That
0: was another... Listen, you'll hear the theme of uh, what triggers Brad to do things. But I've been a part of this CEO group for years. Uh, and it actually just just uh, disbanded. And the uh, principal started created some of their own groups. But the group was called War Room. And I was standing in the back of the room drinking tequila, as I do at these things sometimes... And this guy was standing on stage. And I knew this guy through, I didn't know him personally at the time, but I knew of him through mutual friends. This guy, Jesse Itzler. And Jesse uh, was the founder of Marquee Jets. He's one of the owners of the Atlanta Hawks. He's married to Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanks. He's a character too. And he's talking and he said, Yeah, I'm doing this endurance event for anybody that wants to do it. And he said, You know, I rented a mountain and I'm challenging people to climb the mountain the height equivalent of Mount Everest. And in this case it's climbing this mountain 17 times in a row. And I think that I had an audible response to him. It was like a visceral reaction of oh shit I have to do that. That sounds like I got to do that. And I sort of forgot about it and then a couple months passed and I but I I did fill out the form on their their website. So a couple months passed and I get a call From his partner, Mark. And so we scheduled this call while I'm at another event. I'm sitting at a bar in Denver in a Four Seasons drinking Manhattans. And I have this call with Mark. And Mark and I immediately connect and we're just a similar kind of crazy. And so we're talking and Mark's kind of feeling me out and he's telling me about the event. I said, okay, so how long does it take to go up the mountain? And Mark said, and, and keep in mind, we're doing 17 laps here, right? So how long does it take? And he said, well, we think it takes about an hour. And I said, you, you think it takes an hour? And he said, yeah, well, I mean, I've done it once and Jesse's gone up it twice. And I was like, hold on, neither of you have done this before and you've only done it three times total and you're getting a hundred people out there to try to do this 17 times? And he was like, yeah. I was like, okay, that's okay. And I said, well, how long are you giving people to do this if each lap takes an hour and there are 17 laps? And he said, well, we're thinking we're gonna give people 36 hours. And I said, 36 hours? And he said, yeah, yeah. Do you think that's not long enough? And my drunk ass, I said, motherfucker, I could do that shit twice in 36 hours. (laughs) (laughs) And immediately when I said it, I regretted it. And (laughs) he said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, I've had a few Manhattans. Maybe I'll tell you tomorrow. And Mark said, yeah. Or you could step the fuck up and get your foot out of your mouth. And I said, oh, shit. (laughs) Okay. And the amount was seven weeks out. Where is this? The event was in Vermont on Stratton Mountain, which is a ski resort. Got it. So Elevation was not a challenge at this one. They have since, and I have since, done this event again at Elevation, which is different, but it's an endurance event. So seven weeks out, I quit drinking, and I just start training hard. But here's the thing. 17 laps, and now I'm ambitious, and I'm like, I'm going to do this 34 times in the same period of time that people are doing it 17 times. But 17 hours straight of exercise is a lot of exercise. So (laughs) when people train for uh, an Ironman race, which is sort of like the, a lot of people think of it as the pinnacle of endurance, right? It's the, for a very long time, the largest triathlon that you could do. Ironman races cut off at 16 hours. That's the end of them. And for a lot of people that that train, it's a 10 to 12 hour experience for somebody that's moving. And people train for a year or nine months for an Ironman. And I have seven weeks. So I'm looking at how to go about this. And it's 17 hours. And I start breaking it down. And I'm systematically doing laps on this 60-story building in Austin with a weight vest and an oxygen restriction mask on. And I'm doing all the things I can to try to escalate the pace of training. And I mean, there's a long story. But the consolidated version here is I get there. And I have to navigate all these things to figure out how to do this in the period of time allotted because it's not designed for me to do it, right? They're, they're catering to the people to do it 17 times, but I am committed to doing it 34. And I go and I just, I'm just tearing through it. And we, I go straight through the night. So I start 2 p.m. on Friday and go straight through the night. And by 11 a.m. the next day, I am starting to fade. <laughs> However many hours that in that is, I think 21 hours in, and at the time I had done about 21 laps, so I'm right at this hour pace per lap. And then the 22nd lap, I just hit a wall. And now the sun has come out again. I'm still in my all black long sleeve, hat on, from it being 40 degrees in the middle of the night, and now it's 80, and I'm just dripping and struggling up the mountain. And I remember getting to the top of the mountain. And Mark grabbing me and he goes, hey, and he looks in my eyes and he says, are you within yourself? And I'm exhausted, right? And I was like, I don't know what the fuck that means, but I got to go. <laughs> and he was checking me to see if I was coherent and it was safe for me to keep going. But what ended up happening was the next several labs, I lost so much speed because I was so exhausted that I fell way behind. So by 5 o'clock that night, what they closed the mountain for the night that night. And at 5 o'clock that night, I had only done 24 laps. And I had 10 laps left. And there was only 8 hours left in the race. So they closed the mountain at 5 o'clock. They were opening it again at 6am. So I had this night to rest. And I'd gone at that point for 27 hours straight or something. And when I, I was doing these Facebook Lives, and when I got done that day, I was... On a Facebook Live, and I was like, look, the math on this doesn't work anymore. Each lap is taking me an hour. And I now have 10 laps left to do, and I only have eight hours. Like this is no longer possible. And as my friends would do, or the you know, people I'm connected to, I had all this cheering from the couch. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> Don't stop. <laughs> and I was like, hey guys, that's cute. <laughs> like, I'm not quitting. I'm just like mathematically, this doesn't work anymore. And then in my head, I thought. Do I just stop now? Because now I can't hit my goal. It's clear to me that I can't hit my goal. And I had two friends reach out. One was uh, this guy, Curtis Christofferson, who is a a friend uh, from another CEO group, Mastermind Talks, that lives in Canada. And the other was Cameron Harold, and who uh, was the operator from 1 800 Got Junk in the early days. And uh, both good friends. Cameron's become a very, very good friend. And Cameron left me this long message giving me all of these different possible permutations of how I could make this happen. Curtis sent me a text that said, how I read it, it didn't say exactly this, but how I read it was, I know every lap has been taking you an hour, but if you could just do them twice as fast, you could do it in time. And I I remember reading it and being like, that motherfucker, you know, and I just totally dismissed it. But it stuck with me. And I ate food I drank water, I took an ice bath, took a shower, went to sleep and I'm laying in a tent. And for most people, this is more of a social event because they've got a lot more time to do it. So I'm laying in my tent and there's a Bob Marley cover band thumping while I'm trying to sleep. I'm laying there, <laughs> and I'm just right, but I can literally feel the base in my, on the ground in my tent. So I lay there for a few hours and I get up at 540 and I pound some food. And I think, OK, as I approach the starting line the next morning, I think, let me just see how fast I can do one lap, just one. And I go and I fucking push. I mean, like my heart is pounding. I'm breathing heavier than I have been. I'm dripping sweat by the time I get to the top of the mountain. And I look at my watch at the top of the mountain, 33 minutes. Ooh. And so I had this fraction of a second of celebration. And then the rest of that second was me thinking, well, I can't fucking do that again. Then I get to the bottom. And this is only, we're only running up. So we go up, take the gondola down, run up, take the gondola down and run is an aggressive term for what I was doing. (laughs) This is a very steep uh, situation, but I think, all right, on the way down, I can't do that again, but let me just see if I can do it one more time. Go up the mountain, heart's beating out of my chest. I'm panting when I get to the top, dripping again, 31 minutes.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And I think, all right, let me see if I can do this one more time. Third time, fourth time, fifth time, sixth time. And by the seventh time, and I was right around that mark, by the seventh time, the math had then flipped. And now the math was working. And by the, yeah. the, the, the seventh lap, I had three left to do that day. By the seventh lap, uh, I started, I was coming down in the gondola and I just broke down crying. Alone by myself. And I'm a, I would love to have the release of crying more often in my life. I just don't know how. Something stops me growing up as a child in the 80s, perhaps. I don't know. But I'm coming down, I'm crying. And I think, as I do anytime I cry, why the fuck are you crying? This is the thought that goes through my head. And then I think, well, like, really, what is making me cry? And what came to me was that I was proud of myself for being confronted with this situation where I thought it was quite literally impossible and I kept pushing anyway. And that lesson has helped me in a lot of different areas of life. And the end of that story was, you know, I did the seventh lap, eighth lap, ninth lap, 10th lap and finished those 34 laps in 36 hours. And at the end of it, I got down and, you know, there's no fanfare. <laughs> there's, there's not even like an award that I won. There were six people remaining. Jesse Itzler met me at the bottom and I marked the organizers. And Jesse was like, Man, a lot of people were talking shit, but man, you fucking did it. And I was like, people were talking shit? And he was like, Yeah, man, a lot of people were. And I, I was so oblivious to any of it because I just had my blinders on going. Right. And, and in retrospect, people were thinking, what the fuck is he doing? Right? Why is he doing it twice? Why does he have to show us up? All this different narratives that I could see that, but Anyway, the, for me it was just a, a personal victory. You know, and I yeah. got in my shitty rental car, went back to the airport, went home, went to the office the next day, and taught myself that I have the capacity to do way more than what I'm doing. Yeah. Right. And could I have done the rest of those laps in 30 minutes from the beginning?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing. Well why would you say I guess would you say, first of all, that everyone should subject themselves to some type of challenge in that spirit? Yeah, I think that I think the, the gig is no.
0: <laughs> I think that some people just it doesn't have to be that. I think that the thing is what you should subject yourself to is going a significant distance past your baseline. So wherever your current comfort level is with something. It serves you to try to go way past the mark that you're at right now and commit to something that's way past that baseline. And so if it, you know, for running, for example, athletics is just such a physical feats are such a simple concept because everybody can grasp it. So if, if a mile is really difficult for you to run right now, commit to running five and go through the process of doing that, right? Or commit to running 10. But the, the challenge lies and the lessons lie Within moving past your baseline, it's not about how big the thing is. It's about how far it is from where you currently are. And when you go through that escalation of saying, hey, I'm currently only capable of one and shit, I did five, that will give you the lessons and the fuel to take it to 10 or 15 or 20 or take it in a totally different direction with something else in your life. But yeah, it definitely serves you to prove to yourself that you can do that. And we
1: all can. Yeah, dude, I'm going to go out and do my longest fucking bike ride that I've done in a long time. (laughs) I love it today. I love it, Brad. Today, I'm not waiting for tomorrow. I love it. Fired up right now. Yeah. And you're leading other entrepreneurs on journeys of adventure at this point as well. Is that something you do now?
0: Yeah. I go on and off with it. Uh, I have, uh, I've probably got, I did a trip to Fiji where we did a bunch of cool stuff a few years ago, just before COVID with 20 entrepreneurs. And I have probably seven others that are just like in the can waiting to happen. But I go through waves of adventure, right? And right now my adventure is specifically building Easy Pay Direct and some real estate projects. And I'll get back to the adventure stuff in the upcoming years. But right now it's, uh, I wanna see what happens when my full energy goes in one direction.
1: Yeah, well, that's gonna be amazing to see I'm super inspired just from having talked to you here today, Brad. If people want to follow you, keep up with you on on social media or someplace else, uh, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Yeah, you can certainly find Brad
0: Weimert on Instagram. You see my shenanigans there, W-E-I-M-E-R-T. And you can check out Beyond a Million, which is a podcast you'll find on all the podcast places. That Instagram, you'll see a variety of personal adventure business stuff. Beyond a million is specifically eight, nine, 10 figure entrepreneurs, and specifically talking about business, sales, marketing, operations, technology, and taxation, and what works when you're building a company well beyond a million.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, Brad, this has been great. I really appreciate you bringing value to the Cutco Vector audience today. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you, man. Thanks for doing everything you do. That was awesome. Brad Weimert, everyone from the lessons of radical ownership and being outcome focused in what you're doing, protecting time for the things that drive everything else. Just great lessons from the early days of his Cutco Vector experience to the lessons of endurance and the inevitable suck that happens in anything that you do that is worthwhile. It's never a straight line to success. And how will you respond in that period of inevitable suck? And I think thinking through that in advance and making decisions in advance, when there's no emotion, you're not in the moment, I think that's a key to knowing that you can get through those times and you will get through those times in your business and in your life. Love the Everesting Times Two story and just all of the lessons that were, captured in that part of the conversation. Just committing to something that is beyond past your baseline. I think that's a great lesson right there. And on that note, I am going to head out for a bike ride. Hope you've enjoyed today with Brad Weimer. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals.